Hi there. My name is Misty Denman. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team, and I'm so glad we get to be studying the book of Joshua together, albeit from afar. I can honestly say that it's been a joy to get to do Women in the Word, even in this sort of unusual setting we've had this semester, and sort of in awe of the technology that um, is out there to allow us to do it this way. It's been a lot of fun. We're at a really fun part of the story of Joshua. If you grew up in a church and in Sunday school, this is a story that's probably familiar to you. You may remember felt boards and songs about it. If you're like me and you didn't grow up in a church, it still kind of fills you with awe at what this story is about. It's newer to me. It's an extraordinary part of Israel's history, and I am excited to talk about it with you today for sure. So if you aren't already there, open your Bibles with me to Joshua chapter six. I'm going to begin reading just those first seven verses. Here we see Israel's preparation for battle, but it's a highly unusual way to ready the troops. Honestly, it's too far-fetched to believe is true if it weren't in the scripture, so I'm glad it is. What's happening here? Before we get to that question, I think it'll be helpful to take a look back at where Israel has been in its recent history for just a, a minute. So remember with me some of those other really extraordinary things that have happened to usher Israel to this very moment in time. After the death of Moses, God himself commissions Joshua to lead Israel into the good land with promises and with instructions. And God's promises to Joshua were these. He says, I have already determined to give Israel the land. You only need to lead your people into it and to claim it. And I will be with you when you do that. And I will never leave you. God's instructions to Joshua were these. He says, because I am with you, be strong and be courageous. Fight your fears with that knowledge as often as necessary. And be careful to know and to act on my word. Joshua embodies remarkable leadership in our story today. It isn't the first time he's proven himself to be a capable leader. Remember when he sent spies into Jericho back in chapter two on that successful mission to scope out the city for the coming conquest. He inspired Israel as they crossed the Jordan River and because of their faith, they all got to see God miraculously hold back the water so that every one of them could pass into the good land safely under his authority. Israel built that memorial to remember that that happened for generations to come. And most recently, he has led Israel to renew their commitment to worship and to keep covenant with the Lord in chapter five. Now, as chapter six opens, I imagine Joshua having gotten up really early in the morning, the rest of the camp is still asleep, to go and sit by himself somewhere. I imagine him sitting back, sort of unseen, but with those walls of Jericho out in front of him, trying to pray and strategize as to how he's going to lead the people to conquer the city. I imagine him speaking to God um, along the lines of, Lord, I believe you. I trust you when this, that you say that this land is ours from the taking. 
but what I see in front of me is this impenetrable stone wall between us and them. Lord, show me your plan and give me this courage and the skill to see your plan through. And then that leads us to the opening scenes in chapter six. And let's go and read that now before we go any further. Look with me at chapter six, verse one. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout and the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. Jericho was shut up tight because everyone inside feared the people of Israel. Now there's more to the city of Jericho than meets the eye possibly. Joshua did not randomly choose Jericho as the first city to invade. It was a very strategic location on a major transportation route. He really had to win this battle. Israel had to take Jericho before the army could go any further into Canaan uh, because of that trade route. And also because trying to bypass it would have left their families that they left behind in Gilgal um, exposed to Jericho who would have surely come to um, slaughter them as the army went around them. Meanwhile, Jericho had surely heard all about Israel's God who had stopped the waters of Jordan. They knew their gods had never done a thing like that and they were doing everything in their power to protect themselves. Stockpiling weapons, organizing for battle, uh, sealing every entrance and exit point around those city walls. At that time, living in a walled city offered really good protection. In fact, Back when Moses sent those original 12 spies of which Joshua was, was one to scope out the land of Canaan 40 years ago, all but Joshua and Caleb came back saying it would be totally impossible to defeat Canaan. Part of the reason was because of this. Look with, your, uh, look with me at your verse sheet at Numbers 13. This was the report of the spies who said, however, the people who dwell in the land are strong and their cities are fortified and very large. Jericho would certainly have been part of that. Invading armies of a walled city really didn't have a lot of options, which was the point of having the wall around it. You could surround the city long enough to try to starve it out. There would have been limited resources within it and eventually people would have needed to leave to replenish those. However, Jericho had, this is so interesting to me, the largest freshwater spring in the entire region within its wall. So it was actually really well positioned to have water and food for a long time to come. 
An invading army, if you were trying to take a fortified um, walled city, could try to go over the top of a wall. You could use battering rams to try to knock that wall down. One historian I read said that Jericho probably was the most invincible city in all of Canaan, quite a place to start. Israel didn't have any battering rams or catapults or any of those other weapons for this kind of warfare. And so as Joshua must have been working his way through all of this in mind, the Lord promises to him victory over Jericho. I think it's with great kindness and mercy that God assures Joshua that what looks like from a very human point of view, an almost impossible battle for them to win, it's in fact a done deal. The Lord says, I have given Jericho into your hand. It's not a promise coming out in the future, but spoken to him as something that has already been done, already guaranteed. Along with that promise, Joshua receives these specific and highly unusual instructions for the military and the priests of all of the ways Joshua might have imagined that this conquest would happen. I can't believe that this was one of them. And I think it it would do to pause here for a moment and appreciate how hard it would have been for Joshua and then for the people to wrap their mind around exactly what God was asking them to do. We're talking about men who were probably excited, itchy, and primed to go to battle. They know that God has promised them victory and they're probably imagining it in a pretty usual way, going in in a usual kind of warfare, but with probably extra power and this victory and skill and strength that was promised to them by God. Instead, God tells Joshua he has other plans and is absolutely crazy as it must have sounded, Joshua faithfully communicates these instructions to all of those men under his authority. When Joshua does this, I believe he is acting from a deep well of faith. First, he takes God at his word that he will deliver this mighty city of Jericho into Israel's hand without any fight at all. This is going to be a religious processional and ritual instead of any kind of military strategy. Second, Joshua has to trust God that he will prevent Jericho's army from coming over that wall and attacking them as they're just marching, not with all of their weapons drawn, ready for war. Third, and this would have been the one that would be by far the hardest for me, Joshua had to trust God that when Joshua goes back to tell these plans to the camp that he won't be laughed out and lose the loyalty and following of all of Israel when he explains that instead of what they think will happen, they will be silently marching around the city instead of invading it. So we all know how God's word convicts us. Joshua 6 offers more than enough personal conviction for my comfort level. As I've studied it, I've had a lot of um, moments of personal conviction. And I will honestly tell you that I am still struggling with Joshua's example of faithfulness here because it is so remarkably strong. As I've studied, I've just had to ask myself over and over again, would I trust God as fully as Joshua did. What would I do if I were in Joshua's shoes? 
Would I really choose to put my career and my reputation on the line like he did? Would I really risk being misunderstood and ridiculed by everyone around me? I, I don't have an answer to that exactly because I haven't been put in Joshua's shoes, but I really want to have that kind of faith. So the question I've asked myself is how do I, how do all of us prepare to fight our own faith battles? How do we prepare to simply take God at his word, completely trust him, especially when his word teaches us something different than what we imagined things to be like or what is just the conventional thinking of the world around us? Jesus had a little something to say on this matter. Look with me on your verse sheet at Luke 16, 10. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. We prepare, I prepare for the big struggles and faith battles in our lives by being faithful in the small everyday battles. We can choose in the power of the Holy Spirit to do all of what he tells us to do even in those small unseen things that nobody knows about, even when we could justify doing something otherwise, even in those everyday acts of trust and obedience, even those will strengthen us for those times in our lives when we feel like there's an impenetrable wall of Jericho in front of us and we don't know how we're gonna get around it. Look with me at the insight from 1 Corinthians 15. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Before Joshua did this great thing, I know he spent many years at Moses' side, doing the small things faithfully, worshiping his Lord, his faith growing along the way, and when the time came here, he was ready. I pray that the same would be true for me and for you. And we don't have an answer of what we would do in Joshua's shoes, but hopefully if we do these things, we would have a good outcome too. So let's continue on and pick up our story in verse eight. I'll be reading through verse 16. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout, then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on and they blew the trumpets continually and the armed men were walking before them and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day 
that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. So for six days, priests and soldiers silently marched around Jericho, around once, and then they returned back to camp. First came those armed guards, then the seven priests with the ram's horns, then the Ark of the Covenant carried on poles by more priests. Behind the Ark would have been armed guards and soldiers. Now, evidently, it would not have been all of the fighting men of Israel who would have been part of this daily procession. There simply would have been too many of them. Most likely, there would have been a, a group of men sent from each tribe so that the whole nation would have been represented. And there is lots of significance to every little part of God's instructions for how this march was to happen. We could spend several more weeks on just those instructions, but I'll just hit the high points here as we're talking about it today. The ark would be the most significant part of this processional because over the ark is where the presence of the Lord dwelt. That ark itself uh, could only be handled by a select group of priests. It was treated with the highest level of respect because it was where God's presence dwelled. When God tells Joshua in chapter one to be strong and courageous and not frightened because the Lord is with him wherever he goes, here he and all of the men can literally see God going with them. The number seven obviously is prominent here. It symbolized God's perfection and completion. It also pointed to the victory that was to come belonging first and foremost to the Lord himself. And all of Israel would have understood that the inclusion of the priests with their horns and the ark and what otherwise would have been a strictly military event meant that God was there with them. Now, these horns were not musical instruments. I wanted to show uh, a picture of what that procession would have looked like. I searched high and low for a good picture. Almost every picture either had the people all out of order or they had the horns being these like, what we think of as like a brass horn. None of that was right. So I don't have a good picture to show you. If I could draw, I would have made one, but I can't. Those horn blasts uh, would have been not for music, but would have just had tones that came out of them. They'd been used throughout um, Israel's history with Moses also as a communication tool. There could have been long and short blasts and um, just slightly different tones that would have been used to um, communicate. And that would have been the only sound that anybody would have heard as this march happened. Because remember, the men were told to be silent. Now, we aren't told exactly why or what the purpose was behind that silence, but I have some thoughts here. The first one is that silence doesn't come naturally to many of us. It's usually, at least for me, much easier to talk than to listen. A silent march gave these men time to hear from the Lord in their own hearts, to speak to the Lord in their own hearts, to think on Him and his ways to talk to him about their ever-present fears in that moment. Um, all of Jericho at any time could have decided to come over that uh, wall like an anthill that had been kicked over and attacked them with their far superior weapons. That silent march would have given those men time to pray about their fears. Silence required probably a lot of personal restraint and discipline. 
I think that it's also very likely that the people of Jericho would have been watching them and taunting them in different ways. It would have been very hard to keep silent during that, watching all of that unfold. But on the seventh day, the men encircled the city seven times. And on the seventh lap of that seventh day, Joshua finally commanded everyone to shout. So let's pick back up in verse 17 and see what happens next. And the city and all that is within it shall be, oh wait, I'm sorry. Yeah, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. These are Joshua's instructions to the people. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her at her house shall live because she hid the messengers who were sent. Remember that happened back in chapter two. But you keep yourself from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. Let's see, but all the silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. We'll stop right there. When the people obey Joshua's commands, Joshua, uh, the Jericho's walls crumbled, Israel overtook the city. And can you imagine those war cries after the long silence? Can you imagine both the anticipation and the questioning in the hearts of these men? Some I would imagine would have been all in, hearts about to burst with excitement about how God was going to do this thing as they're on that last day's march. Some probably wondered if God was really going to do this thing after all these days and why right here and now and what would happen next. Maybe some wondered why God required this strange um, processional when there had to be a more direct path to victory. There were probably as many different feelings and questions as there were men, but nevertheless, all of them chose to obey. You know, it's not really so different for us, I think. Here are a few things that I don't fully understand. How exactly is God three in one? Why is it honestly better to turn the other cheek to our enemies? How do I really not worry about anything? How do I really count myself blessed in times of hardship and mourning? You know, I have some level of understanding about all of these things. I absolutely believe that all of God's word is true, but I still struggle with how these and a lot of other things work way down deep inside. And as I was thinking about these things the other day, this verse came to mind. It's actually been one of my favorites for a long time and has helped me understand things that I don't understand. Isaiah 55 on your verse sheet. This is God speaking. And he says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know, as believing women here and now, um, we are putting the time and effort to learn all of God's word. That's why we're here today. I've been committed to that for many years myself, but my complete understanding of God's um, word is not a requirement for obedience. Truly, there've been a lot of times in my life where I've only started to glimpse the why in hindsight when God's way clearly had a better outcome than what my uh, idea for things would have had. I can see that looking back. 
There are some things uh, I know I will not be able to understand about the Lord and His ways this side of heaven. But I can take God at His word and I can trust that He loved me deeply enough to send His Son to die for me and I can obey Him based on His character and not on my full understanding. You know, Joshua and all of Israel chose to obey God when he asked them to conquer Jericho in his way and in his timing. And it worked out well for them. Their battle wasn't with conventional weapons. It was a battle of the heart and the mind to believe God. Likewise, our challenge is to faithfully trust God and God's timing, even when we in the moment may not completely understand it. So let's talk now for a moment just about verse 21. I wanna read that one by itself. Then they devoted all, of it, all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Now for good reason, the reality of what happened here might be hard for you to make peace with. If you questioned that and, and why Israel did that as you studied this week, I think that's a good thing because it means you're thinking deeply about the things of God and want to understand it well. Jericho's destruction was absolutely brutal. Here are some truths that help me understand God, God's heart behind what happened here. To begin with, completely wiping out Jericho and later other cities in Canaan were God's specific and unique instructions for this time and place. It did not establish a pattern for future warfare or warfare outside of the promised land. In fact, back in Deuteronomy, specific laws concerning warfare outside of Canaan um, were given, Moses gave those, and he stated that Israel must, before they went into battle, uh, make peace offerings or uh, try to have terms of peace before any military conflict happened in order to avoid war whenever possible. God is establishing here in this time and place, the nation of Israel as a people holy and set apart uh, in a land that he himself had promised them long ago. And it's been mentioned before, but I think it's worth reminding ourselves now that the people of Canaan were evil. Their worship of false gods included child sacrifice. It included um, ritual sexual exploitation, countless other acts of cruelty, and they knew about Israel's God and the mighty things he had done for his people. And they flat out rejected him anyway. God brought judgment and on their rejection of him and their sin, and he used Israel to do that. Now with the benefit of hindsight, because we know the rest of the story, we can also see through the rest of Israel's history, how easily they were lured into adopting the um, culture and false religions of the communities they lived around that led, leads them later on into much sin. Wiping all of that out here was a real protection for Israel, both politically and spiritually. God is serious about Israel's holiness. He's serious about our holiness as well. And if he is that serious about it, I think we should take our, our holiness that seriously as well. So here's one more thing I've learned along the way. When we come across things in the Bible like this that might take us aback, keep studying, keep searching, find out the rest of the story. 
don't just read one verse that feels uncomfortable to you um, and reject it because of that. Read the verses that come after, read related teaching. Honestly, in, in order to understand um, God's heart here, it, it requires you to go back and look at um, Israel's history really from the time of the book of, of Exodus. Uh, you might find a trusted commentary that will help shed light on the issue, but what I know is it's worth the time and effort to look more deeply to get to God's heart for humanity in every part of His Word. So that's just my encouragement to you because this won't be the uh, last time you come across something you think, hmm, that's a little tough. A little more about Jericho's fate when we talk about Rahab in a minute, but for now, let's pick back up our reading um, in verse 22. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time. That would be the people of uh, Israel saying, "'Curse before the Lord is the man who rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. And at its cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates.'" So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. As God promised, after the battle comes the victory. Now only Rahab and her family, we read here, were saved from the destruction of Jericho. Why were they saved? I love this story so much. Hopefully you were with us a few weeks ago when we began uh, this story in chapter two. This is simply a continuation of her great story. Remember that Joshua sent those two spies into Jericho on this important secret mission to find out everything, everything they could ahead of them taking the city. Through God's providence, they, the two spies, connect with Rahab, whose home, by providence, is built onto the inside of the city wall. Though the Israelite spies are Jericho's enemy, Rahab hides them. She misdirects her own people who are looking for them, and she helps them get out of the city safely. Why would she do that? Look back with me at her astonishingly insightful words from chapter 2. Before the men, the spies, lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there is no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And when she asks them to help her in return, the spies ensure her safety and her family when they invade. So she sees 
who God is in a way that nobody else in Jericho was willing to do. She trusts her life and the life of her family um, to the Lord and his people there. You know, Rahab was privy to the exact same set of observations all of the rest of Canaan was about who God was and what he could do. Rahab alone responded to those facts with faith in the one true God. And she and her family were spared because of it. All of those who heard about and saw who God was and what he could do chose to reject him and they fell under his divine judgment. Rahab, despite being a Canaanite prostitute, was saved by God's grace through faith as was promised to her by the spies. This truth also is key to understanding what happened to the rest of Jericho because they had the same opportunity to see and believe and repent as Rahab. I believe they also would have been spared had they done that. You know, I read that part of God's plan for seven days of marching around the, seven, uh, the city of Jericho may have been to give the people inside the city time to reconsider and repent. None of them chose to do so. Let's see what Second Peter has to say about that. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It would appear that when the walls of Jericho crumbled, that it was only Rahab's little section of home that stood. And can't you imagine what that sight would have done for the faith of Rahab and her family and those spies and Joshua as they see Everything else crumbled to the ground and her home standing there. They got to see what God had done there. I am sure it was a, a picture they never forgot. The rest of Rahab's story gets way better than mere survival. As Gentiles, she and her family were originally taken outside of the camp when they first arrived, but they were enfolded into God's people. God's grace is mighty. Rahab's past as a Canaanite prostitute did not matter anymore. Her present faith is what mattered now. We don't get to read about this, but uh, if we look ahead, Rahab marries a man named Solomon, who must have understood a lot about grace himself, given that he married this Canaanite woman. They become the great, great, great grandparents of King David. They're part of the Messianic family line that leads all the way to Jesus. And that's why I love this story that God chose Rahab to be one of his um, ancestors. After victory, the city was burned to the ground. Now, this is, this is a bit unusual here. Israel obeyed God's instructions to completely in, uh, destroy everything perishable within the city. You know, earlier we talked about some of God's laws concerning warfare. Another part of that same section of law told Israel that they had the rights to any spoils of victory, to whatever plunder that was left over after a military conquest. But that wasn't to be the case with Jericho. And they all knew this well ahead of time per Joshua's instructions before that wall ever came down. I think the temptation to help themselves to everything Jericho had must have been tremendous. 
Jericho was a city of great means and resources. The Israelites were still nomads at this point, living out of tents. Imagine the self-discipline it would have taken to leave all of those things behind that were there for the taking and would have been useful for them to have for their families. But God wanted to provide for Israel in other ways. Jericho was really of tremendous symbolic and strategic importance to both Israel and to the people of Canaan. Burning it to the ground accomplished several things. Those once impenetrable walls now crumbled to bits and left there would offer a powerful visual reminder of God's power for a long time to come. No doubt the sight of that city conquered and torched by these landless former slaves armed with just spears and rocks would continue to strike fear in the hearts of the Canaanites for a long time to come. Their fear would have made them easier to defeat in the days and months to come. It also would have been a lasting symbol of God's judgment of Jericho's immorality and idolatry. It would have been a monument to the power of the living God. If that city were to be rebuilt, those lessons would vanish with the rubble, both for Israel and for all of the rest of Canaan as well. The only thing to be saved were those imperishable metals, and those were to be placed into the Lord's treasury. We don't know exactly what would have happened to them there, but we do know that took them out of common daily use. Now, putting all that valuable gold, silver, bronze, and irons into the Lord's uh, treasury also is very much an offering of those first of the spoils of victory, of uh, taking the good land. As they returned to God, what he had abundantly provided for him, it must have helped to solidify in their hearts and minds that it was by God's power, not their own, that Jericho was defeated. They owe him their gratitude and their praise and their worship and obedience. And obeying um, God and what he asked them to do with that city was definitely an offering to the Lord. Joshua in another great display of leadership underscores the importance of doing exactly as the Lord says in laying on oath over the people. If anyone chooses to disobey the Lord, and rebuild Jericho or keep any of those spoils, they will be cursed with the loss of their sons. There's more on how all of that worked out next week, but I get to end on a high note today, high note today and I'm taking advantage of it. So we're gonna leave that right there. Verse 27 is a great ending to this story. And it tells us that the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was widespread. It was because of Joshua's obedience that he enjoyed fellowship and favor with God and his community. That fame extended far beyond his own little community into all of Canaan. It would have helped to pave the way for future victories, which in turn blessed all of the people of Israel. Having a leader to whom they could entrust their very lives was a gift. Having a leader who with his words and his actions encouraged them to be faithful to God was a blessing to all of Israel. There are so many things to learn from Joshua and Rahab and the fighting men and the priests and even the Canaanites in this story. But the only thing I hope we really, really remember is this. As Christ followers, our battles always belong to the Lord and our lives are always in His good hands. Look with me at Psalm 28, 7. The Lord is my strength and my shield. 
In Him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exalts, and my song I give thanks to Him. The Lord is the strength of His people. He is the saving refuge of His anointed. No matter the earthly outcome, victory is ours when we trust God in in our strength and choose obedience to Him. No matter the earthly outcome, our victory is ours. Victory is ours when we trust that God is our strength and choose obedience to Him. So let's pray. Lord, I wanna thank you for making a way for us to be together here today. I thank you, Lord, for doing the impossible on our half over and over again. I thank you for holding us in your good and mighty hands and the battles we face in our everyday and in these, um, the, the times that are hard to predict right now. As we face our fears and our challenges today and in the days to come, Lord, would you help us remember Help us to remember what you did for Jericho and to remember that you are the same God now as you were then. May we be known, Lord, as women who stand firm on the truth that you are our help and our hope. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray these things. Amen.